Um, thank you for joining us today at the Institute. I'm Emma Norris. I'm the Director of Research here. Um, and today we're going to have a slightly different um, event format. We'll be debating the question of whether government outsourcing is working or not. Um, and I'm sure panellists are also going to have views on how it can work better. And we're very grateful to Gowling WLG for sponsoring this event. So why is the Institute running this debate? Well, the future of outsourcing is one of the major policy issues facing the UK today. A 30-year relative consensus on its role in the public sector appears to be coming to an end. And indeed, after a series of debacles, public confidence in outsourcing um, is looking shaky. But as we said in an Institute for Government report last year, outsourcing and procurement account for a third of public spending. It covers everything from the purchase of goods like hospital beds, to the maintenance of roads, to the provision of social care. And indeed, four departments spend over half their budgets with external suppliers. So any changes to outsourcing is likely to have profound implications for all of us. And debate on the condition of outsourcing and its future, and indeed how to improve it, is therefore critically important. Now, we're really lucky to have an absolutely stellar lineup here to debate this question. Um, shortly with us, we'll have Sam Juma, who will be in the empty chair, arguing, um, <laughs> arguing in favour. Uh, was, Sam was a joint minister for higher education at the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, um, and indeed the Department for Education um, until last year. And prior to that, he served in a number of ministerial positions, including as Parliamentary Undersecretary of State for Prisons and Probation, so very relevant for the discussion today. We've also got Chris Matheson. Um, sorry, over here. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, he is MP for the City of Chester and the Labour Shadow Minister for Cabinet Office. We've got Matthew Fell, the UK Policy Director of CBI, and the CBI have recently been doing research into the successes of outsourcing. We've got John Tizard, an independent strategic advisor and formerly um, director of government and business engagement at Capita. He's also been a joint leader of Bedfordshire County Council. We've got Katja Hall, who's the director of corporate affairs at Capita, one of government's strategic suppliers and one of the major outsourcing companies. And we've got Alan White, currently the news editor at BuzzFeed, who's written extensively about government outsourcing and procurement, um, including the book Shadow State, Inside the Secret Companies That Run Britain. Now, the way the debate's going to work is we'll ping-pong between speakers arguing for and against the question, each making their case for five to seven minutes before going to you to ask any questions or comments that are going to help you make up your minds. Um, we then might have a brief vote um, before summing up, um, and then we'll close by 9.45 um, at the latest. And now we're going to open the debate with Chris um, and then go to Sam. But before Chris stands up, I'm going to just have a few words from Michael Luckman from Gowling, our sponsor. Uh, good morning, everyone, although I'm sure we'll soon put a stop to that. Um, the business of government is vast, okay, so there's a really key question as to how is it going to be done. Currently, I don't think the answer is by solely by a hard-pressed government that is strained in terms of both capacity and skill set. So the government needs support and the indications are, as you've heard from the research, that this support is not insignificant. These are not small bits of work that the government gets support for from outsourcing. You've heard that one-third of general government expenditure is spent on outsourced projects. If you want to translate that into GDP, that's 14% of GDP. Of that spend, 20%, one-fifth, of that goes to strategic suppliers, each of whom earn more than £100 million of revenue through that procurement route. 
Now, recent experience has suggested that this um, public-private relationship has not always been happy for either party. In the public sector, we get delays, unbudgeted costs, poor quality, and public criticism. For the private sector, there are poor margins, unclear objectives, significant political uncertainty, and potential reputational and financial ruin. So we need to better manage and understand how this combination might work, because there's definitely a shared interest in getting all this right. We need to deliver to the taxpayer value for money and quality of delivery, and for private enterprise, investment certainty and profit. As a supplier to government through the commercial service, Gowling have been delighted to sponsor the Institute for Government in this work into these dynamics. And I think I'd like now to start straight into the debate. And I know Sam has just arrived, but we're not going to drop you straight in it. So I think I'll still start with Christian, if I may. Thank you very much. Um, good morning, everyone. Thank you for that. Thank you for sponsoring the event tonight and for the uh, very nice um, breakfast um, and the coffees and so on outside. And uh, I've not been to the Institute for Government before, so thank you very much for uh, um, inviting us. The title of the... Um, event is, is outsourcing working and uh, I have to say that that depends entirely on whether you're an outsourcer or whether um, you are a recipient of the services because there is a sense that we have that it's working if you're an outsourcer and you are, you are um, able to take the profits but if you are um, a taxpayer that is having to underwrite those profits and all too often we find that the risk is borne by the taxpayer then it isn't working quite as well. Let me say at the start that there are some areas that I think that there is a moral case for not outsourcing. I don't think it's right, for example, that in the criminal justice system, whether it's probation, whether it's prisons, that there should be an element of profit in what is a, an unpleasant and uh, but necessary part um, of living in, a, in the modern world in terms of um, uh, uh, providing justice or um, probation work. For, similarly, um, there should not be a profit element in deciding whether somebody is sufficiently disabled to, re to receive benefits or whether that person should be going uh, back to work. And we've seen um, lots of difficult areas, um, and lots of difficult uh, wrong decisions taken um, within that particular area of uh, social security with um, up to a third sometimes of decisions being overturned on um, appeal once they go out of the private sector. Um, area. The, um, the other main problems that, um, that uh, we have from our point of view is that there is a very small pool of outsourcing companies. They're very large, they tend to hide behind uh, commercial confidentiality, um, so it's very difficult to establish just quite how efficient or otherwise um, those companies are being. And so, uh, Katia, for example, from Capital, I've tried to work out and tried to establish how many different uh, contracts. Capita has with various different government departments and not even the Cabinet Office can tell me at national government level what the extent of Capita's involvement is uh, within um, government in terms of the, all the contracts um, and the value of those contracts and the length of those contracts that are spread across national government and of course at local government um, that's um, the, um, the, uh, the, it's even more uh, difficult uh, to establish. Um, a lot of the uh, contractors that we have seen um, aren't actually spe specialists in those particular roles. So I think I'm correct in saying that Interserve, for example, 
um, at the time that um, it hit its difficulties was running some probation services and it was also building motorway junctions. Now that's not, to my mind, a recipe for um, building motorway junctions correctly or delivering probation services correctly. That is simply a contract management company not designed to deliver public services but designed to maximise uh, profits for um, th that particular company and its shareholders. And therefore to take large amounts of public, uh, public finance and transfer them to the public sector rather than concentrate on delivering quality services. Um, the, um, the margins that many of the larger companies will offer in terms of bidding are very tight, which is why that we see um, a lot of the, a lot of the uh, contracts uh, failing. And we know, for example, there are problems in, um, in the um, army recruitment. We've had problems in the NHS in terms of the dental register or in terms of uh, management of the primary care service contracts, where these are then having to be taken back, not, in the, not yet in terms of the army recruitment, taken back in-house at increased co cost to the taxpayer. So, um, just to let you know where we stand in the opposition for when we uh, get into government. Uh, last month, we announced new guidelines for central and local government managing contracts of services, which will come into contact, which those services will come into contact which, with people we deem at risk, and we will exercise active state powers to manage those contracts. These kind of services include assessments for sick and disabled people claiming social security, NHS care, the treatment of people in detention centres and prisons, and failure over recruitment and substandard housing for our armed forces. Whenever a relevant contract expires or is terminated, central or local government will be required to assess whether a service involves significant risk with these at-risk groups and exercise those active powers um, or, in, um, or whether they risk infringement of people's rights. And if the answer to those questions is yes, statutory guidance will be uh, given to, to bring back the service in-house, um, except in certain cases such as um, whether it doesn't fall under the, the definition of, does not fall under the terms of, refer of a relevant contract or whether the contract is below um, a certain threshold. The government themselves have identified um, problems in outsourcing and that's why um, they have made themselves uh, several changes to um, outsourcing um, criteria, though we don't feel that they've been active enough or they've gone far enough. So in future, any, government, any companies that are bidding for government contracts will have to give um, certain, uh, uh, will have to meet certain criteria, full trade union recognition um, and complying with collective bargaining agreements, commitments to fair pay and conditions, and move towards a ratio of 20 to, 20 to 1 between the lowest higher and highest paid sector, adopting best practices and equal opportunities and full tax compliance. There is no presumption that outsourcing is automatically wrong. And obviously government, local or national, can't deliver every service themselves. But there has to be a recognition that we've gone too far with too few large companies having too much power and too little scrutiny hiding behind, um, hiding behind uh, commercial confidentiality or suggesting that freedom of information, for example, does not apply to them. That will change. There will be a presumption of insourcing and where there is outsourcing, uh, there will be much greater scrutiny to ensure much better value for the taxpayer. Thank you. Thank you, Chris, for setting out um, Labour's position now. Sam, it's um, Thank you. You're all so polite. Um, you, you applauded that, but I don't think that all of you necessarily agreed with what uh, Chris um, said uh, before me. Now, um, I'm a backbencher, so I will set out 
what I think is the issue, some of which I've seen in government. But I think a lot of what I'll see is consistent with the government's position. But it's got to make it clear I'm not speaking as a minister in the government. So um, some of these are my own thoughts. Now, um, I think the, the, the starting point um, is, and where I take issue with Chris, is the presumption towards insourcing. Now, um, the, there is no way, having been a minister, that government should, take on, should begin to do everything from cleaning office buildings, you know, doing office maintenance, and all the different tasks and activities that go on, some of which are not core to doing what we as politicians or civil servants have to do to deliver for citizens. So I think the, for us, so my first issue is a presumption towards insourcing will be a big step backwards in terms of how services are delivered. Um, there are huge numbers of services within government that are delivered by private companies that work well. But what we all know is in the system in which we are, if things are working well, you never hear about it. You only hear about things when they go badly. And that is, what, and, and that is where outsourcing has a particular problem. So the question then becomes, are there areas of activity or government that you cannot at all outsource? Um, are they too core to the delivery of services for citizens that there is no way in which a private company with the profit motive uh, can uh, be involved? And I'll focus very much on my own experience at the Ministry of Justice where, when I was a minister for prisons and probation and uh, just share some of my uh, thoughts with you from that. And I can understand, for example, when it comes to prisons, why people would argue, why do you want a private company involved in meeting out justice to people at all? But what I observed was the fear that companies are profit-making means that when government gets into an outsourcing contract, actually does things that are perverse. So... You have failures in the public sector, you have failures in the private sector, you have failures of outsourcing. But then what I notice is that the contracts are drafted in such a way that you will not, standards that you will not apply to a public sector uh, organization, you'd expect to apply to a private sector organization because they, 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 they might make profits out of it. So we've got to expect something completely different out of them. Now, the, what that leads to is it leads to contracts that are totally unrealistic in terms of what is deliverable. So in the probation service, you know, what you're expecting CRCs to do, the amount of detail they have to fill in, it's not really as focused on outcomes. All of that, we don't really expect necessarily of the National Probation Service. And we are far more tolerant of failures within the public sector than we are if it's a private sector company, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be tolerant. I'm just saying what this means is that first point, the contracts are often unrealistic. We expect unrealistic things of private companies in terms of efficiencies we want them to deliver. Often government looks at outsourcing when it's looking to gain efficiencies. So we will tell the public that we want to improve the service. But then when we come to drafting the contract, we would say it's all about efficiencies. So we want the, we want the lowest bidder to win. <laughs> And so we're looking for contradictory things. Sometimes value means you pay for more. But if you're, willing, if you're paying the cheapest rate while telling the public that this is going to be a complete improvement of the service, 
Don't be surprised, I think, if three or four years down the line, you look down and the service hasn't improved and you're having to renegotiate those same contracts. So I think there is a, so firstly, the contracts is an issue, the expectations are an issue. There's a lack of honesty often on both sides. The outsourcers know that unless you bid low, you're unlikely to win the contract. So they bid low in order to win the contract. But both sides know that if you're bidding that low, it is going to be very hard to deliver that service. And so three, four, five years down the line, you would inevitably have a problem with the delivery of those services. Um, there is a huge lack of knowledge, I believe, on the government side of what drives private companies and why and why they do the things that they do, or lack of understanding. And so all these clawbacks and mechanisms that are then introduced are just things that overcomplicate what should be more straightforward services um, in, in my experience. And certainly when I looked at the uh, uh, community and rehabilitation company contract, we could never actually work out at any point in time whether a, an outsourcer was delivering or not delivering. <laughs> because you know, you've got credits against them, you've got services they've delivered, they've under-delivered. We could never actually understand on any given day, are they doing what we wanted them to do? And so my, I'm sure we're gonna have a broader discussion around this. I believe that the profit motive and suspicion of the profit motive should not be a reason to turn the clock back towards a presumption towards insourcing. When it works, it, when it works well, it works very well. I have seen outsourcing companies, and come like Serco, lots of conversations with Rupert Soames, who see their job as partners with government. And this whole idea of profits, I mean, if you, anyone who looks at the stock market, we know that outsourcing companies are on very thin margins. Companies that are on 3% net margins are not raking it in. It is not a hugely profitable sector. And that is why lots of them are on the verge of always um, sort of going out of business. If we want to make it work, then I think government has got to be honest about what it's buying and actually purchase value. Sometimes what works is a little bit more expensive than you think it is, and that you've got to pay for it. But on the, on the other side, I think private companies should not bid low to win contracts, knowing very well that they can't deliver the service, and then disappoint. You wouldn't do that with private contractors. You shouldn't do that with the public sector. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, next up we've got Matthew Fell from CBI. Great, thank you. Good morning, everyone. Um, so um, I'm here from the CBI. I think um, our role is multifaceted in this debate. We uh, speak for many of the strategic suppliers to government and the many, many more small and medium-sized businesses that do business both nationally and locally. We speak for business as a user of public services. And perhaps most importantly of all, we represent, you know, those businesses speak for around 7 million employees who rely on public services day in, day out uh, as they go about their lives. I've also got a minor declaration of interest up here on the panel this morning. I have Catcher Hall, my former boss, uh, and John Tizard, my former colleague at the CBI before he crossed the floor. So uh, I think it's good company. I wanted to leave you with um, uh, just three messages this morning. Really, uh, firstly, to say, actually, I do think there is something of a success story here that is not talked about sufficiently. Second, there is lots of improvements already in train, so we can expect things to get even better. And then thirdly, 
that actually we are rightly very demanding and we shouldn't be complacent. And I've got some ideas about where we could go even further. But let me start with that success story. Because what is not talked about, I think, is the sort of 200,000 or so businesses that every <laughs> single day around the country do business with government in some way, shape, or form. And our first instinct in this sort of debate has, I think, very often been to talk around efficiency and cost savings. And of course, there is an element of that that goes on. And I think if you look for some evidence, uh, it is there that contestability does introduce some savings over time. But I think that misses the really key part of this debate, which is the human element of this. And that is what I wanted to talk a little bit about this morning, because I think in many different areas, you talk about health, for example, the huge innovations that are coming, how artificial intelligence is being used to detect and treat cancer at an early stage uh, to improve uh, life chances, how some of the new wearable technology is improving uh, people with long-term illnesses, dementia and so on, to continue living longer in their own homes, improving the quality of their life. Talk about different areas of public services, police and crime, how, uh, again, technology is really improving our understanding, national databases which didn't exist 10 years ago, meaning we can much more efficiently and effectively target and address crime to solve them more effectively. Or in different services, again, the London Fire Brigade, for example, introduction of new dedicated training facilities, more training than ever being delivered, 160 or so firefighters back on the front line uh, as a consequence of that, and at the same time reducing training budgets by around a third. So I think in many different areas there are good news stories to tell that improve individual lives on a daily basis. And I think the moral imperative here that we talked about already actually is one that, as an individual, I should have access to the, the best ideas and the best solutions, regardless of whether that exists in the public or private sectors. I think there is not a monopoly of good ideas on one or the other. We should be harnessing the best of both. Message number two for me, though, is that there are further improvements on the way. I think business and government have been collaborating really well to work out how do we do this stuff even better in the future. There's a so-called playbook uh, being developed by the industry and government. And I think a few features of that I just wanted to mention this morning. Firstly, around risk management, something that does need to be improved about identifying, quantifying, and then <coughs> allocating that risk so that it is undertaken by the party that is best placed to manage it. Piloting. I think too often in the past when we've tried to do new stuff, we have dived in with both feet and actually, this is really important, particularly in first-generation contracts, that we take the time to understand, refine, and tweak, and work out how we do this really well. So I think there is a bigger role for piloting to play in the future. And then the third change I wanted to highlight is around a pipeline, understanding what nature and sort of contracts are coming down the track. And the reason I think this is so important is it should drive up quality. The more businesses that are aware of what is coming down the track, the more people can tool up and prepare and get the skills right and think, is this something that I want to play in? And if we get that right, government has the benefit of choice and enhanced quality because it harnesses as many good ideas as possible. But I wanted to finish by saying, I think the bar is rightly set high 
and I think we should be really demanding. And a few thoughts on that to close. One is that I think we really do need to eradicate the scenarios where there are single bid tenders. I think we do need to have lots of different ideas thrown into the pot. Second in the news, prompt payment in the last 24 hours. I think this is a, something that we ought to just need to get right. We have uh, really important for healthy supply chains, but also if you're in this business, why wouldn't you just take the reputational stick away? So get this sorted would be my second message. And then to close, we've already talked about the power of evidence uh, and data. And I think that is a good success story, but we shouldn't be debating this on opinion. This is about getting good KPIs, good metrics, and good transparency out there. Let's see what works and make an evidence-based judgment on all of that. So I think a success story on our hands, plenty more in train, and let's be really demanding to get it even better. Thank you. Okay, next we've got John Tizard. John. As is inevitable, when you speak after two or three other speakers, you could agree with a lot of what's been said. So I would just reflect, Sam, when you say that it doesn't matter who provides office cleaning, I wonder what the office cleaners in your former department in the Ministry of Justice who have had to take strike action because of the conditions they've experienced through their outsourced contract might think about that. Matthew rightly refers to the lack of evidence and the, or the need for evidence. I think one of the things that strikes me most about the, the debate and indeed the continuous implementation of outsourcing, which has been going on perhaps, well, it's been going on for centuries, but has really become dominant in the last three or four decades, has been that although this has been called to consecutive governments in terms of public policy and public management, there's never been a systematic analysis of the impact, the evidence, the IFG and others have done some work, but there's still a, lot, a lack of evidence. So we've had a very evidence-light policy based on assumption and conviction rather than on evidence. And even where there is evidence, it seems to often to be fairly narrowly focused, focused on case studies, focused on those contracts which have failed, those which have been most successful, but not comprehensive. We don't look at the holistic cost of outsourcing. If outsourcing leads to fewer staff or staff on poorer terms and conditions or lower wages, that has an economic impact on the place. That should be taken into the assessment. It may well lead to increased expenditure by DWP and other government departments in other parts of the public sector. That's not taken into account. We always look narrowly at the bottom line for the department or the unit that's outsourcing rather than the totality. What's happened to employment conditions? Even the meagre regulations introduced by the last Labour government in terms of two-tier protection, for example, have been abandoned by the, by the coalition government and continued not to be there. What about the impact on the capacity of the public sector to manage 
services or have the potential to bring them back in if all the resource and all the capacity has been outsourced. I think that has to be taken into the assessment as well. And then there's the issue of democratic accountability and transparency. It was interesting when Chris referred to commercial confidentiality. In my experience, when I worked at Capita, it was often the public sector that wanted to hide behind commercial confidentiality rather more than the, 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 the providers and the contractors for a whole variety of political and no doubt other reasons. So my argument would be, if we are going to continue with outsourcing, we do need to have a comprehensive <coughs> evidence-based review of its impact and also where it works. Does it work in some services better than in others? Does it work, what are the conditions for its being effective? And we've seen significant extension of the range of outsourcing. It's one thing to outsource back office services, administrative, transactional services. It's another to attempt to bring a contractual arrangement for the delivery of complex personal services, where it's very difficult to specify outcomes or even outputs. And it's extremely difficult to measure who's affected that outcome. And I think we get into these extremely complex areas. We've also had and again, Sam referred to the probation service, and I don't want to dwell on the detail, and he'll know far more about the detail of that than I do. But it seemed to be over-complex, and again, not properly defining the role of the public sector and the role of the outsourcers uh, and the contractors. And again, that it, the interface not being there. So we've over-engineered, we've tried to be too clever. Chris referred to the fact that in many areas of outsourcing, there's not a competitive market, and you've only got to read NAO report after NAO report to show that. So the benefits of competition appear not to be there. And where there, are, where there is competition, it's often in very small, more bespoke areas with a very fragmented supply chain. So we've got to the position where the NAO referred to some of the major suppliers rather like the banks, now too big to fail, where the government has to intervene. So my argument would be that we need to reverse the commitment and the pledge in the 2011 white paper on public services, that the assumption would be that nearly all public services could be open to competitive tendering and to the market, and move to a position where the presumption is that it's in-house, and where a public body, whether it's central government, local government, the NHS, police, are looking to outsource, they have to be able to demonstrate in a transparent way the public benefit of so doing, taking into account all the short, medium and long-term costs affected with that. And in particular, the risk. Because how often has the argument for outsourcing been based on the fact that you transfer risk? Ask anyone in the Cabinet Office or anyone in a local authority having to scurry around when Carillion got into its, into its difficulty to ask the question, where does the ultimate risk lie? The ultimate risk cannot be transferred by the public sector, but when the public sector has to pick up the failings of Carillion or whoever, it has to pay additional costs, so there's an additional cost to the public sector, so clearly not delivering public benefit or public value. So. I think we need a much more nuanced debate. We need to get evidence in place of assertion, but we should start from the assumption that the public sector, accountable, transparent, is the way we start, and where there is an argument against it, it has to be proven in a proper public way.
John, thank you. Next up, we've got Catcher Hall from Capital. Thank you very much and good morning to all of you. Um, so I joined Capita just before Christmas last year. Having previously worked for a large international bank, I thought it was time to do something uncontroversial and universally popular, so I went to work for a large outsourcing company. And that really gets us to the heart of where we, uh, why we're here today. What exactly do we mean by outsourcing? and what are the roles and the responsibilities that come with it. And Emma, you touched on, on how we define outsourcing. And for some people, of course, outsourcing means pretty much anything that would previously have been undertaken by the state. It, that could include things like building aircraft carriers. It could include things like the procurement of paper clips. The broad arguments in favour of outsourcing are well rehearsed, but I wanted to just recap on them here today. Firstly, outsourcing frees up civil servants to focus on their core jobs. Secondly, I think business disciplined when married with well-designed contracts does result in sustainable cost savings. And thirdly, when outsourcing is done well, it does create better outcomes for citizens and for government. But we should also be really honest, as we have been so far this morning, about the fact that there have been issues, and we have to be candid about those issues, and we have to be candid about how we're going to put them right. There has historically been a lack of transparency, um, but perhaps more importantly than that, I think historically there's also been a chasing of short-term revenue, and that has led to failed contracts. I think ultimately the structure of the state is a matter for politicians and, and for voters. Outsourcing companies of course can contribute to the debate, but I think our main role is to make sure that we do our jobs successfully and um, responsibly. And I wanted to just say a few words about Capita and what we do. So um, our um, revenue, around 40% of our revenue come from the public sector, so, so slightly less than half. Our specialism is in technology-driven transformation, so we use software, we use digitally-enabled processes to make systems work better and sometimes, yes, also, also cheaper. Um, we spend a lot of time looking at trends in automation, in machine learning and in data and think about how that can help governments and what implications that will have for how we deliver public services in the future. And something that's become clear to me in the, in the months since I joined Capita is just how much um, technological innovation there is at Capita, but also how proud our employees are of their role in helping to deliver public services. And of course, inevitably, that's often lost in the public debate. And I wanted to just give you a couple of examples of that. So earlier this month here in London, um, Capita launched the world's first ultra-low emission zone that we delivered for TfL. This will reduce emissions by 45% by 2021. And it will obviously help tackle air pollution that we know kills thousands of people every year prematurely. Another example, a more controversial one, would be army recruitment, which the previous speakers have already touched on. Capita's contract on army recruitment was failing, and we'd correctly been penalised as a result. Outsourcing works, I think, best where there's a genuine partnership 
and an effective system of carrots and stick that drive the right kind of behaviours for both suppliers and for customers. So when our new chief executive joined just over a year ago, he went about resetting the relationship with the army and we overhauled the whole relationship to make it much more like a partnership and much more collaborative. I think that resetting of the partnership combined with some of the technological innovations that we brought in, um, be that fitness apps for would-be soldiers or some of the data analytics we used to, um, to, to get information around the likelihood of, of people joining the army, we're now turning around that contract. So army recruitment's just had its busiest quarter for seven years, applications are at a five-year high, and Sandhurst has been full of officer trainees, uh, trainees for six successive intakes. And of course the government is rightly determined to ensure that we do our job well. Um, Matthew, you touched on the procurement reforms, the so-called playbook. We perhaps talk a bit more about that in, in the discussion. But from our perspective, um, the playbook represents a significant and an important step forwards. And Matthew, you talked about some of the proposals in the playbook, and, uh, and I agree with what you say. So this um, uh, focus on risk and appropriate allocation of risk, uh, the, the need and the requirement to pilot projects before they're rolled out um, full scale, and importantly, <coughs> making sure that KPIs are publicly available so that we can increase transparency. I think they're all really, really important reforms. I also think the companies that profit from providing services to the public sector and to the state need to be particularly aware of their wider social responsibilities. That includes the responsibilities set out in the Social Value Act, which we support. It also includes their responsibilities with, for example, um, paying SME suppliers on time, as you touched on, um, Matthew. Um, but it's also why we are very pleased at Capita to be the first company in three decades to be appointing two employee directors to our board, which we will do next month. So from our perspective then, outsourcing is working, but it is our job and it's our responsibility to keep proving that to government, but also to the country as a whole. Thank you. Thank you, Katja. And um, now, last but not least, Alan White. Alan. Who knew so many people were interested in outsourcing? <laughs> Hello, Wembley. Um, so I thought what, what I'd do is um, just set, set some of the debate in, uh, in historical context, recent historical context, because uh, I think you'll find it's quite instructive. So 2016, I wrote the book, which the IFG is kindly plugging behind me. Um, and I think it was the first sort of long form look at this industry. And it flagged four main sort of issues slash topics for concern. And they were accountability and risk, transparency, uh, market failure, and lobbying and conflicts of interest. And it was based on all the stuff I'd done back when I was a reporter, dating back to about 2011. I'd looked at things like G4S and messing up the Olympics and the army coming in, uh, ATOS and the work capability assessment, probation, all these things. Um, and you know, my, my findings on the industry, I felt, were quite concerning. Um, 
the book didn't make that much of a splash. One thing that was quite interesting was that a year later, I'd, in the process of doing the book, had a somewhat kind of prickly interview with the British Services Association, so the umbrella group for outsourcing companies. A year later, they produced their own report into outsourcing, and to my surprise, they kind of agreed with everything I was saying. So, quote, government must formally acknowledge at the highest level that the procurement and contract management tools appropriate for buying paper clips, paper clips, highly commoditized, easily specified goods and services are not appropriate for commissioning complex support services and frontline human services. Um, that was 2017. The next year, Carillion collapsed. And that led to a parliamentary select committee uh, inquiry by the Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee. They produced their report mid-2018. And their report, again, flagged the same issues that I raised in the book. So they confirmed a sort of central thesis that I put forward. Uh, quote, the government was unable to provide significant evidence for the basic assertion behind outsourcing, that it provides better services for less public money, or a rationale for why or how it decides to outsource a service. On transparency, it said, the outsourcing process appears opaque and the government does not always follow its own contracting procedures. Uh, something else that happened was that uh, Rupert Soames of Serco got in touch with me. He told me that he'd been sitting in bed next to uh, Mrs. Soames alternately purring and growling at my book and wanted to talk to me. Um, he took issue with uh, the uh, points I'd made about risk. He felt that there'd been a, a sea change in recent years, which meant that, the, that his company was taking on more of the risk than it used to, unreasonable amounts of risk, he felt. And his argument on this was kind of compelling. He gave examples of sort of contracts where they were being clobbered over minor mistakes, that sort of thing. PACAC uh, also backed up what Soames was saying in their report. Um, it said, PACAC has found that the government has had to renegotiate over £120 million of contracts since the beginning of 2016 to ensure services would continue. But it also says, um, it's written contracts that force contractors to pay out when it gets its own data wrong and has been known to forego performance penalties in the initial phases of contracts. So the, the sort of the balance of risk on, our, on both sides clearly is not working for anyone. The next sort of dot on my timeline is the Seabourn Ferries scandal. So that happens in February. You'll remember that we uh, contracted a company with no ferries. Now, when you take all of that together, and you'd expect my sort of contribution to this debate to be just uh, hammering the government and successive failures and all the rest of it, and I think that would be a fair way to go. However, in the last, I mean, it's been, there's been a, a, a direction of travel for, for clearly for about half a year, but uh, 9th of February was the collapse of the Seaborne contract, 20th of February, the outsourcing playbook came out. Um, now, I believe that that is, a, I do believe it's a significant step in the right direction in terms of how the industry works, how we manage contracts. Um, there's a lot of positive things to say about it. I do think that. Um, however, I don't believe it's a silver bullet. I do believe there's plenty of potential for things to keep going wrong. Um, I'm going to just quickly raise a uh, sort of handful of points around where we are now. One thing is that I believe there needs to be clarity, centralised government intelligence and clarity over whether uh, quality of service or value for money 
is the priority with each uh, decision that gets made in this direction. And the outsourcing playbook kind of hedges around this. It's a very small entry in the playbook. Uh, it says, uh, quote, value for money is defined as securing the best mix of quality and effectiveness for the least outlay over the period of use the goods services are bought. I mean, that's progress in terms it's not just we need to save money, but I wouldn't say it was particularly extensive. And I'm not convinced there's much transparency around those kinds of decisions. It's going to be tough for people like me to work out exactly why a thing has been outsourced or not, as far as I can see. Um, I'd like a more meaningful evaluation of things like uh, payment by results. It's all very well talking about innovation, but when you're causing small businesses to go bankrupt, which has happened, or other things are going wrong like that, let's try and genuinely make out whether this is working or not. When PACAC told government to do that, they sort of hedged around the issue. Um, I'd like a better understanding of cash flow and financial position of the people we're giving contracts to. Again, Playbook has stuff in here. Um, it has a section on what it calls economic standing. Now, my suspicion is that with something like Seaborn, the playbook would be quite useful because you'd be able to look at it and go, well, they don't have any boats. That could be a problem. Um, with something like Carillion, I'm not convinced that, that the guidelines are going to be much help. Um, I believe government is yet to publish its thoughts on the benefits of uh, PFI, which is kind of an extraordinary thing. It'd be nice to see those. And above all, I'd like more sort of centralised intelligence. Um, uh, PACAC recommended a, a, a sort of centre of excellence. Uh, government said, no, we're not doing that. Um, but you've heard from, actually, you've heard quite compelling evidence on both sides of this debate that there's a clear lack of centralised intelligence and knowledge sharing and so we keep kind of making the same mistakes over again. Um, finally, I do think it is insane that we're having this debate and talking about this progress in 2019 rather than, I don't know, 2012 when we had to call the army in or any of the assorted scandals that I've covered over the years, but we are where we are and I'm conscious that I'm kind of howling into the void. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> Okay, thank you, Alan. Um, so now you've heard the panel um, make their case. This is your opportunity to ask them questions to help you make up your minds. I'm going to take questions in threes. I'd ask if you could also give us your name and organisation. Um, John first. John. Sorry, there's a mic coming in. Hi, it's uh, John McTernan. I'm a senior fellow here at the IFG, amongst other things. Um, I've got two questions, one for each side of the debate. Uh, the first one is for uh, those opposing outsourcing. Um, I really think the moral argument against outsourcing is a terrible one. Um, DWP inflict pain on claimants through universal credit decisions made by civil servants. And the Home Office, if you judge by morality, the home of Operation Windrush, uh, the Home Office uh, would be closed on grounds of morality. So I, I, I think we shouldn't really think about that. Actually, if we had maybe the last speaker said payment by results, how about applying payment by results to government departments? That might be interesting. And on the other side, for those in favour of outsourcing, how about a full-throated um, defence of profit and making profits? Why will private companies not defend making profits? Profits are a fair return on capital de to deployed. They're also underpinning my pension, most of the pensions of people in this room, because that's what pays dividends, and that's what actually supports the, the shares that are in my pension, my local government pension and my private sector pension, um, and my private pension. Um, so why not that? And also, 
why not some scrutiny on how government uh, gets return on capital and allocates capital, which it does really, really badly. So this opposition, I think, there's, there are major and profound questions that need to be answered by both sides. Um, thank you. My name is Imran Khan. I'm an independent writer. I can confirm, I've moved to London just last month, that the government services work very well here uh, compared to my home country, Germany. Um, they are very fast um, and even I got uh, answers and, and things got done within 24 hours, which is a dream to be done in Germany. Um, uh, my question is uh, to, the, to, to, Ms. To, to both of you actually, uh, Mr. Matheson and Mr. Gaima that uh, um, uh, when you were in government, your party was in government, what was done to, um, to, to address this issue? And why did it work and why it did not work? If you could please tell us that. And Mr. Gaima, if um, you're in, you have the mandate of the people, you're in power, um, and you know, you just mentioned a couple of problems, why can't they be solved by just creating a regula regulatory authority, bipartisan if it works, uh, which, um, which, which regulates the, the private sector. Thank you. Um, hi there, my name is Jack Pershke. I um, work for Atos uh, in their digital services division. I run their, their government business. Um, so, uh, listening to the debate, it's been very interesting, but I feel like uh, there's been a bit of conflation of a few uh, issues. So I think uh, it might be helpful just touch on a couple of those. So, so one, question one, I feel was, are outsourcers in any way inherently bad? Are they evil organizations? <clears throat> I feel like there's agreement that that isn't the case, right? They're, they're not bad things. So then question two was, is outsourcing inherently worse than insourcing? And some of the previous questions have touched on it. Uh, and I think I would cite the, the incredibly wasteful and miserable failures of insourcing that depressingly are incredibly low profile. Sam, you talked about um, only hearing about failures. Well, actually, in the in-source world, we don't even hear about the failures. Um, in my world, immigration platform technology, 200 million pounds in counting, rural payments, 250 million pounds counting, common platform program at the MOJ, 150 million pounds counting, student loans company transformation program, 60 million pounds, and stopped, right? So these are all massive uh, insourcing failures. So to come back to the question then, is outsourcing working? Well, I think, again, I heard more agreement than I heard disagreement. Well, it seems to work when it's done well. So the question is, whose responsibility is it to do it well? And the answer must be the government. They set the objectives, they write the terms, they run the competitions, and they manage the contracts. So here to get me back to my question is, would the panel agree with me that the government needs to be better at outsourcing? And that includes better transparency so we can all understand the contracts. Uh, we talked about secret um, commercial companies. We love more transparency because we want to know what we can compete for, right? What's coming up? We'd like more accurate codification of outputs and outcomes. We'd like better risk management and better service regimes. We'd like to avoid low-ball bidding because we lose to low-ball bids all the time. And we would be perfectly um, acceptable for f level playing field regulation for workers' representation, pay, and conditions. So, really, I think the ball is in the government's court to make outsourcing better. That's my question. Thank you. Okay, so we've got um, one government, part two. Um, why not defend the profit motive? A question on regulation and does government need to be better 
Um, I'm sat right behind the podium, as you can't see. Um, let me just answer John's question first. Um, um, the difference between, uh, with, with, in terms of mor morality, is that with government there is accountability. And let's face it, Home Secretary, you're absolutely right about Windrush, but the Home Secretary lost her job over it. Um, so there was a certain element of accountability which you don't get with... Um, uh, with uh, outsourcing companies. As for profit, I'm all for companies making a profit. I want this country to be the richest country in the world. And that means that our, countries have to, our companies have to be successful and have to make a profit. You have to make sure, however, that that is fairly shared amongst the employees um, uh, that, that are undertaking the work and they're not even making that profit simply by driving down um, uh, wages. And I think John, you, you mentioned that, John, about, about the driving down wages to make a profit and then the money goes out of the country and the people who are getting the wages and there are fewer of them will get less money. So you asked about the um, about what did the last Labour government do. Well, forgive me, but you best asking that to John, who was a very senior advisor in the last Labour government. One thing, um, so uh, if you want to come up here, John. Um, but one thing I do remember that, that happened was that fairly soon after we came into um, office, can I make a political point? Can I, can I dream of the last Labour government and remember when the grown-ups were in charge? Um, um, uh, 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 can I... Um, yeah, uh, can I... Um, one thing that did happen was that immediately after uh, we came in, um, in, particularly in terms of um, um, uh, local government contracting, we introduced best value instead of, instead of raw basic comp compulsory competitive tendering purely on price, there was a quality um, uh, uh, criterion there which was brought in which helped to stop a lot of this cut, 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 cut and collapse um, in, lo in local government and that was a big, um, um, a big, big, um, uh, big improvement. And for the gentleman, uh, where are you, sir? I, I, uh, gentleman, I, I once, um, in a previous job in, in private sector, I once um, contracted Atos um, uh, data services to help us with some of our data servicing, um, although I kept quiet about that for a while once Atos, um, another part of Atos took on the, uh, the, um, the disability, um, I mean I'm sure you're back and re rehabilitated now, but yeah, absolutely, we can't, we can't tell how well private uh, 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 outsourcing contract com companies are doing if everything is mired in that level of um, secrecy, so transparency to demonstrate where it is successful and transparency to demonstrate where we are getting value for money um, is absolutely important. I'd be up for that. Um, well, well uh, two thoughts from me, really. Um, one is, I think, on, on the profit point, uh, I mean, profit is okay. You know, <laughs> profit is a good thing and it can drive good things. My, my one thought on that is actually, I think, um, for those companies who choose to play in some aspects of public services, I think the bar is rightly set higher than other companies who are doing purely sort of business-to-business -business activity. I, I think um, that is where there is a, an element of the sort of social uh, values, social obligations do kick in. So I think it's both, not one or the other. Um, my other thought was going to be on the, this question about should uh, government do better and is there an onus on government? Do yes, absolutely. And the bit I think that can reinforce that that doesn't happen enough is that um, companies need to be more willing to walk away. If actually uh, the tender doesn't look good, it doesn't look right. I think one of the things that has caused a problem in the past, for as long as there is, it only needs one, if you are prepared to go in uh, to enter into a poor contract or if you're just chasing lowest cost, actually that kind of breaks the entire system. It does need, I think, companies to be brave enough to walk away from a bad contract and that will drive 
um, that will drive government getting better. So I think it's, yeah, it's, a, it's a yes but for me. I mean, um, on the profit point, of course you expect private companies uh, to uh, have the profit motive. And you know, as a conservative, um, you, would, you wouldn't expect me to say otherwise. Um, and we all buy and use services daily in our lives from companies that make huge amounts of profit. Right? I use, I've got an iPad, I've got an iPhone. I don't begrudge the Steve Jobs estate for how much profit they make because they are fantastic um, pieces of technological kit. And I think when it comes to outsourcing, the issue here, and I think um, Alan, you touched, Alan, you touched on it, is what are we buying? Is it value for money or is it quality? And if you, what you want is the lowest cost, then you should expect that you'll be getting a specific type of service. And if you get a service that is not good enough, then you can't turn around and say, well, it's because you're in it for the profit. If you're buying something that is quality, then you should expect quality to be delivered. And I think what, we, what I'm saying is in the minds of the public sector, we are not clear what exactly we want from outsourcing when we're buying it. Do we want the cheapest way to provide a service for the taxpayer, or do we want to buy quality? And if we're buying quality, what are the outcomes that we expect to be delivered? And I think that compromises the whole idea of the profit motive. Not to mention the fact that there have also been some shocking examples. Tagging dead people, for example, private company, that is a shocking example. And that gives outsourcing a really bad name. So I think we've got to call out those situations. And the point about regulation is, I think what we need is we need um, uh, much more clarity around the contracts and what they're supposed to be delivered, what they're supposed to deliver. The bar is rightly set high, but I think the bar shouldn't be set high for companies to compromise and do a shoddy job. The bar should be set, and set high in a way that the accountability framework within the operate is very clear. And I love the fact that you said that um, you've had a great service here um, that you didn't have in Germany, because there's always the allure of Germany, isn't it? it but everything, we always convince ourselves that Germany does it better than us. So I thank you for um, highlighting that. There are certain things that we do much better than Germany. Just to pick up John's question about morality, I think the issue in areas such as DWP medical assessments is actually companies have allowed themselves to get trapped because they've taken on contracts for what are very unpopular policies and the responsibility for that assessment is, is not even with civil servants, it's with ministers who have actually introduced that system. And the but companies have gone along, and certainly in my time in working in, in the industry, I would advise not to get near that kind of contract because actually you're in really dangerous territory politically. So I think that's really important. I think the profit issue is you can, what we need is much more transparent auditing of contracts. The real problem is that there is no standard even for open book accounting. It's always seemed to me a deficiency. There's open book accounting, but there's no accounting standard that would universally be applied. External auditors don't necessarily have access to that in information. And often companies will declare a margin of 3% on a contract. Actually, they're making considerably more because what they're then doing, internally trading with a subsidiary of the company, uh, 
where they're making the big margin and then declaring the profit. So I think we need much more great transparency. The question about is outsourcing working, I think it really goes back to something Chris said at the very beginning, outsourcing for whom? And it seems to me the people who ultimately make this judgment are people who use the services and the public who pay the taxes that are funding them, not the outsourcers and not those who have got political commitment to that means of service delivery and have got themselves caught in that, in that way. And in terms of regulation, I would start with what, the way Chris was describing you know, what potentially a Labour government would do in terms of regulation. I think you could go further, particularly around employment and transparency. But I think that's the starting point. So we have some consistency. Like at the moment, there's no consistency, and therefore we don't actually know what we're comparing. It goes back to my point about evidence. Unless you've got good, consistent evidence based on, and I think you need regulation to make sure you've got that consistent approach. Thank you, John. Okay, another round of questions. Hi, um, Sam Windet from Impetus, a youth charity. Just one point and one question. The quick point is, I think when we say outsourcing, we immediately say business. And I just wanted yes. to flag that outsourcing yeah. doesn't yeah. always mean business. And actually, there's quite a few yeah. complex contracts, like the Work and Health Programme, I'd advise anyone to look at, where the third sector isn't involved enough across yeah, government outsourcing, right. but that, is, that we shouldn't. Yeah. I think we've lost that this morning a little bit. My, my point is about this evidence base and transparency, and I, that uh, impetus is, is, is what we care about the most. If you look about at the employment support sector, DWP, um, actually, the work programme, which was much maligned because politicians and journalists didn't understand the amount of data there was. It was hugely transparent. The most transparent uh, contract I think that there was. And currently we have a youth obligation contract which is run by Job Centre and there is no data at all about that. If that, that would not happen with an outsourced contract. You, you just couldn't have it. So I think almost this transparency point has moved government away from outsourcing because some of, those, some of that data is not understood. So I guess, I guess my question for both sides is how do we agree on the evidence base that we want to get to? Because I think we should start moving towards that. Hi, my name's Kanish Rajani. I'm a general practitioner, um, so I'm a GP provider, but I'm also a uh, director of a local healthcare company as a provider. Um, in a past role, I was a commissioner for the local CCG. So my, my question is more about the process of outsourcing. Um, sitting and sitting on procurements, um, we sit around a table and clever people sort of come up with a service redesign that we think will work. But in practice, when the procurement actually goes out, it's gone through le several lots of layers where we're told that it has to happen in a certain way because of rules and regulations. And the end product isn't often what you started with. So my, my question is more about how do you make the, the people who have got the, if you like, the intellectual property of how the service design should happen and what should actually happen in practice, how do you deliver that in practice without being told that, that the management says that the rules are so, so different that you end up with something that you know is going to be less quality but you have to go through the hoops and procure it anyway. And, and an example of that is Sam's um, technology um, sort of tale. Um, if you'd sat around a room and actually looked at the service redesign, you'd have gone for Android, but you ended up with an iPhone instead. <laughs> uh, uh, Nick Sherman, uh, I spent uh, five years as Amy's uh, managing director of their local business, uh, local government business. 
Uh, and I just wanted to ask more about the local government uh, uh, issues around contracting, because there are two that have emerged as a result of austerity, where you've got 40% reduction in grants to local government, colliding with long-term contracts that depended for their profitability and investment by the private sector in such a long-term perspective. You then get a very short-term financial crisis affecting local government and this inevitable clash with the, with the contracts. And a lot of the issues that have arisen uh, around insourcing have been a desperate attempt to try and control costs uh, against very inflexible contracts that uh, are, are not working for either side. So really a question about our contracting process that has led to this and whether this is not an inherent contradiction in long-term contract and short-term flexibility. Uh, and another point uh, a, a colleague just made about other forms of outsourcing. I'm uh, now non-executive director of, an, uh, of a wholly owned public sector company supplying services to local government. And that has given us this sort of flexibility and involvement, uh, both with some of the advantages of private sector management uh, and being very close to the client and being able to adapt. Uh, and really a question whether we can see more flexible modeling at, uh, on the provider side as well as the contracting process. Brilliant, thank you. Um, I think this is probably going to be our last round of questions, so I'll take one more, perhaps from over in this area of the room. Yep, at the back there. Uh, Joshua Pritchard, I'm a researcher at Reform Think Tank, and we recently just published a report on public procurement. Um, one interesting thing which you've not mentioned today is how do we actually make outsourcing better? You know, you've all come up with good ideas, but the big question we have and what we raised in the report is how do you actually translate that into impact on the ground? And one interesting thing we found was the fact that the main training academy for public procurement specialists in the UK, the Public Service Transformation Academy, doesn't actually receive any funding whatsoever from central government since it itself was outsourced and became a, a social enterprise. So my question to you is how do we translate these great ideas into reality? What's the evidence base we need? A question on process and the inflexibility of the contracting process and a good one to end on, how do we improve outsourcing? Who wants to go first? Gotcha. Yes. Um, may I take the liberty just first of all to make a point around and challenge your comments around accountability. I, I, I'm not sure I really agree with that. If you look at Capital, for example, our CEO has been in front of the PAC three times in the last six months. We're under constant media scrutiny, as are other companies in the sector. I'm here today um, on, on this panel. There's no uh, government minister, for example. I do think there is accountability. I agree there needs to be more transparency, but I don't think it's fair to say we're not held accountable um, for what we do. Um, and then on, on the questions, there were, uh, I think you're pointing a couple of points around this thing about how do we make it work better in practice and, and how do we make the kind of process work better. And it's, um, it's a really good and important point and, and I think there are two comments I would make on that. Uh, one goes back to the comment I made um, in my remarks around the relationship and having a relationship that is more mature 
um, and more collaborative and it can be collaborative but still be challenging and I think in fact as, as you said in in the past what's happened is the contractor often hasn't challenged and hasn't been honest about whether they can deliver the contract um, and they haven't really always been honest about what they can do well and what they can't do well so I think there's a big piece around making sure there's genuine partnership um, and, and John, my boss, talks about zippering up of that partnership, so it's at all levels, um, and I think that is, is key. Um, and then on the point of how we make it work in practice, I, I think the, the playbook is a really, really welcome development, but of course we, it needs to now be implemented. And I think that's about, to a large extent, culture change, to be honest, culture change within government, but also culture change within, within companies. And, and we all have a responsibility to move away from the, uh, the very kind of adversarial relationships that we've seen sometimes in the past to a more constructive approach that still includes lots of um, challenge and dialogue. Thank you. Um, yeah, just on the transparency issue, I find the discussion around this kind of hilarious because you, you, everyone you speak to in this industry or, or, or who works with the industry goes, oh, we need more transparency. We absolutely have to have more transparency. And yet it, it never seems to quite happen. Um, we, I mean, <coughs> one thing, not to single Sam out, but I do remember I've had numerous chats with outsourcing firms who've said, we would like to open up all the things that we do in prisons and the MOJ won't let us. They constantly moan that it's the government that's stopping them, A, letting uh, the media or whoever trumpet their best achievements, so the only stories you get to read are negative. And, and then the other point that outsourcing firms all seem to make is that we're not scared of being FOI'd. It's not a worry. So, so, the, so the issue at the moment is, is I, I can't find out all sorts of details about certain contracts because it's prohibited under commercial confidentiality laws. Now, if you talk to any of the outsourcing firms, I've, I've yet to hear from one who's gone, it would be a problem for you to see this if you put in an FOI. Um, I, I still, it's, as far as I can tell, it's the government that feels that we shouldn't do that. And I'm sure they have their reasons for doing that, but it would be, it would be nice if there was movement because the, the, you know, for all this chatter about how we need to improve transparency, the only step that I can see is in the playbook recently where they've said we're going to publish uh, key performance indicators. Now that's great, it's a step forward, but there's still you know, reams and reams of questions around every step of the process. Like with Seaborn, I, it, I'm still none the wiser how this company got identified. Which civil servant found this company? How did they find it? Was it just some mate of someone working in the DFT? What, were they just Googling ferry companies? I don't know, and it's not clear. And so, you know, just with every step of the process, there are always questions to be asked, and it can only be good for that information to come out, even if it's embarrassing and painful, because if that information gets shared through, as I was saying, centralised intelligence, um, you know, you're going to improve the way you manage these contracts. So. John, do you want to come in on the, uh, what's the evidence data? Yeah, I was just going to pick up, too, the point about the voluntary community sector and social enterprise. I think inevitably this conversation is focused on mainly on central government and big contracts and the, and, and the private sector. I think there's a huge role for the voluntary community yes. sector and you know, I'm very active as a trustee in that sector and I think it has a role to play. Yes. 
What I don't think is appropriate, though, is often for voluntary and charity organisations, relatively small, for relatively small contracts, to be put through the same hoops that Atos or Capita would be put through for a multi-million pound contract. And we actually need to have relational partnerships and grants and, and so on, and not in that, that contractual way. What's the evidence? I think the, you know, there's so much assertion in this debate from all sides and all parties, we need, I'm not gonna suggest we need a Royal Commission, but we need a, we need a body that, draw, that can look at the evidence and has a standing which is independent, clearly with input from all the stakeholders, but has some independence and has some really key questions about when does it work, why does it work, what's been the total impact, and you know, the soft as well as the hard impact. Because I think, going back to something Sam said earlier, I think it was Sam, you know, what are the reasons for outsourcing? If John, John McTernan's left, unfortunately. If you look back at the track record of when he was advising the last Labour government, there were nine or ten different arguments for bringing the private sector in and using competition. And they weren't necessarily consistent in the same department for the same service or even for the same contract over a period of time. So we do need to have some transparency of, of what we're doing on, on that and to hold, therefore, the public sector to account because it says we're going to outsource to achieve A, B or C. Actually, they need to be tested they've achieved A, B and C, not just the provider. And to Nick's point about local government, if you were a local government finance director or portfolio holder for resources, the last thing you'd want to do now, if all the uncertainty and austerity is to lock yourself into an inflexible long-term mm. contract and you'll be seeking to negotiate yourself out of one and occasionally there will be a mutual interest in doing that. There won't always be, that will be very costly. So actually we're seeing insourcing in local government by local authorities of all political persuasions increasingly now to give them that flexibility and also to ensure services are much more integrated rather than fragmented which all can be a result of outsourcing. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Matthew, I'm going to come to you. You've got about 10 seconds. Have to uh, well, my final word to be about outcomes for individuals. It would be the answer, Sam, to your question about where do we agree the evidence. I think it should be the outcomes we're seeking to drive. That's what you should focus the evidence on. But my, my real remark about outcomes for individuals, I wanted to be why you should be open-minded towards thinking that the private sector has a role to play in this. Because in my opening remarks, I tried to suggest how innovation can help improve health outcomes for individuals. I tried to say how technology can help tackle crime and help in policing, and how uh, investment by the private sector can help in the fire service get more services directed at the front line. Catcher talked about reducing emissions uh, to improve life quality. I don't think we've heard anything in the last quarter of an hour and a quarter about why insourcing or only using uh, in-house has driven up outcomes. I don't think we've had a single idea put forward about where it's going to lead to better outcomes for individuals. And that's why I'd ask you to be open-minded that the private sector has a role to play in this. Chris, 10 seconds. Yeah, 10 seconds. Um, I'll be very slightly contradictory of my own position here, because uh, I'm very keen that we do start to bring, where possible, um, uh, services in-house and make sure that any extra revenue that is generated is put back into those services. But one of the problems that we have seen over the years, and particularly in local government and in, in local health services, and I think this touches on the point the gentleman, the doctor, made down here, is that the capacity to monitor the performance of contracts has been reduced as the in-house capacity 
um, to, to deliver those contracts has been reduced and outsourced, which has tipped the balance uh, in favour of, um, of the outsourcers when it comes to monitoring. And the other real problem we've had, and I've had it in my constituency as well, is that outsourcers have, uh, a lot of the time, have full-time contract bidding teams who know how to write a professional bid contract um, and um, are able to present this and then threaten legal action. And we've seen it with our Seaborne ferries where um, uh, Eurotunnel and one of the ferry companies has, a, has now got big money off the government and able to threaten legal action um, if the, um, the, uh, the local authority, the local NHS that frankly doesn't have the, um, the resources uh, to, f to face down a legal challenge, um, it doesn't give the, um, give the um, outsourcer that, um, that contract. So there has to be a re-establishment re of the balance as well legally and in terms of cap capability and capacity. I think outsourcing clearly feels when you've got a controversial policy, contradictory objectives, lack of clarity, and then you bring the private sector in to um, deliver it. That anything that goes wrong, outsourcers become the lightning conductors for that policy, whether they are to blame or not. Sometimes they may be to blame. It works when you've got a settled policy um, that would succeed whether the minister changes, whether government changes, and then you can give it to an outsourcer to deliver. Final point on what you can do to make it better. I think government always thinks hiring big is better because they've got big balance sheets. They are likely to be around for longer. But I actually think that sometimes looking at breaking up contracts, smaller uh, uh, companies will give a little bit more nimbleness and bring some of the innovation that is really behind um, some of these um, ideas. It wouldn't work in every instance, but I think too often thinking that you're not going to go wrong if you hire the biggest company, the biggest balance sheet, might not help deliver the objectives you want. made their cases. Uh, now, having learnt nothing from the last two years, we're going to ask you to vote. Um, you didn't tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> so the question is, is outsourcing working? If you think the answer is yes, please raise your hand. And if you think the answer is no, please raise your hand. All slightly on the fence, um, but this is the Institute for Government, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, um, that just leads me to say thank you to an excellent panel for being willing to uh, debate outsourcing before 9am on a Tuesday morning. Thanks to all of you for attending, and the Institute's going to be um, producing lots of work on outsourcing, including uh, revisiting the evidence base, um, so please... Keep watching this space um, and hopefully see you again. Thank you. Thank you.